estate. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Today's show is brought to you by Hearst Ranch Grass-Fed Beef, available on the internet at HearstRanch.com. Well, hello. My name's Dorothy Can Hamilton, and this is Chef Story. In fact, it's the very first radio Chef Story on HeritageRadioNetwork.com, and we're coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, as we will every Wednesday at noon. And we have a special guest today. Chef Story is going to be interviewing chefs all over, from all over the world. And for our debut program, I am just thrilled and honored to have my mentor and probably the inspiration for Chef Story here with me today, none other than Jacques Pepin. Hello, Jacques. Hello, Dorothy. That's very, very nice of you. Oh, well, no. You know, Chef Story was a PBS series, yes. and you helped me get that on, on the ground. I think yes. Inside the Actors Studio came to us and wanted to do something for chefs, and uh, you did a pilot with us, and you said, turned around and said, if that's going to be the show, Dorothy, I don't want to be on it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then we brought in the, the pros who help on your show, uh, you know, Susie uh, Hiller, and, yes. uh, and we really got a great show going. So if you've ever seen it on PBS, it's not on PBS any longer, but it's we did 27 chefs um, and it was great. And Jacques was on that show too. But now we're going to do the radio format of it and uh, we're going to get into uh, the lives of chefs, the philosophies of chefs, and uh, maybe a lot more. So Jacques, we're going to start with you this morning. And as people know, um, for 25 years, we've been working together. You're a dean at the International Culinary Center. Mm-hmm. Most people know it as the French Culinary Institute, but we've grown. And so we're the International Culinary Center. And uh, yesterday, we had a huge photo shoot there. And we have chefs Cesare Casella for the Italian chef and chef Jose Andres as the Spanish chef. Mm-hmm. And we had all the chefs wrapped in flags. Yes. And uh, we tried to wrap you in a French flag, which you took for a little bit, but you grabbed the American flag and you insisted on being wrapped in the American flag. <laughs> and um, right. that, I, 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 it really touched my heart because I know when you were a young boy growing up in Burgundy, you grew up during World War II mm-hmm. and uh, you, you got bombed a lot. And as you said to me, yeah. it was the Americans who were bombing you. And so, uh, what? How yeah. does that? How does that play in your life? Well, I also remember that uh, at the liberation, running after the the American tank, you know, and uh, the GI throwing us chocolate and chewing gum, which of course I never had in my life. I think the first chewing gum that I had with my brother, we kept it for three months, giving it to our <laughs> friends, we were tested, giving it back to us, and so forth. And the chocolate, which I have had, I suppose, before the war, when I was really an infant, I didn't remember the taste, so for all purpose, uh, this was the first chocolate that I've had. So I do remember that as a kind of thing with essential in my 
gustatory life, you know, the, the life of a chef. Fond memories. Uh, for people who haven't read your wonderful book, The Apprentice, uh, it talks about you starting in kitchens at 15 and your mother was a chef and had a restaurant. Right. But going back, I'd, I'd like to explore those war years a little more because you don't really talk about it in your book. What kind of food were you eating? You were in Burgundy and you were in the farmlands, mm-hmm. but did you have all the food that you needed? What was your food no, life we, like we, then? we did not. I mean, my father left, uh, I think it was the end of 53, w- to go into the French resistance. My mother was a waitress. I had a brother uh, a year and a half older than me and one four years younger than me. So uh, she really struggled a great deal to find food for us. And uh, she had a, a bicycle. I still remember that bicycle because it, it, the 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 tire were not inflated inside. It was just solid pieces of rubber. And she would do like 30, 40, 50 kilometer, you know, over the weekend going from one farm to the other trying to get food. And uh, that wasn't that easy, and she did a lot herself. I mean, I remember the, the only sugar that we had during the war was sugar that she made with beets. She made a syrup, you know. Uh, she became very, very talented. Well, she was a talented cook, but uh, at using anything that you can imagine from, uh, you know, a different type of herb that we grow wild and two that she pick up. And uh, that's probably where I got my very miserly uh, <laughs> attitude you know in the kitchen you know, no. I used I cannot throw anything out no well that's a proper thing I mean respect the food yeah, it's so, true but um, what kinds of things was she buying on the farm was it vegetables or well, was she it she could get a couple of eggs half a jar of jam some lard some fat anything that she could get you know or exchange and all this i remember at some point i was put in a school there which we're not supposed to have it was a jesuit school so they were very very tough and i wasn't supposed to be in there because i was too young but uh, they made a favor accepted me with my older brother and in that farm, there was a fair amount of kids whose parents were farmers. So they had a jar of like salted uh, uh, fat, salted lard, and another one, a jar of honey, another one stuff that their parents sent. We had a piece of bread that we got every day, and we banged it on the table, I remember, because usually it was full of uh, little critter, you know, came out of the, the no. bread. It was Maggots? Dry. dry, oh yes. So anyway, but it didn't disturb us. We banged the bread, and then after we used it, and I remember uh, perfectly one day that I came begging for food to one of them with my piece of bread so they put consulted lard on one side and then I turned it upside down go back to the other one for the <laughs> other side and I got like I don't know raspberry jam or whatever on the other side it didn't work out but I become very proficient at begging for food my gosh so how long was your father in the resistance and how long was it from the time you would see him would he ever come back and see you or well that's a good point too because we were born three times because we live next to the railroad station in Bourg-en-Bresse. And the first time, it was actually the Italian. Who you mean tried, the bombings? Yeah, who tried to bomb the, 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 you know, the railroad station and actually blow the part of our house. No one was there. We were at the garden with my grandmother. Uh, and then the second time was the American, actually, who tried to bomb the thing. And the third time was the German. When they left, they blew out the bridge. Three times that house was damaged. Three times we had to evacuate and go to some cousin. But... 
to make a long story short, my father, who was in the resistance, remember at the time we had no telephone, nothing, no way of communicating, so he would appear in town with a couple of cans of sardine or whatever he could get for us and go to the house, and the house was not there or destroyed, <laughs> so he had, oh. to, he had to find out that some cousin, whatever. But no one ever got hurt, you know, so we were very lucky. So he was hiding out all the time. And sure, so he was. You, and he you was. would never know when he was going to appear. No, you couldn't. You couldn't no. know. He was with a bunch of friends in the mountain, and uh, and one time he came to town and uh, he got arrested by the police because his uh, his shoes were full of mud. He didn't realize. Say, you come from the country, where were you? And they put him in uh, again the wall in the prefecture of the police there, like the police station. And uh, he stayed there like eight hours with like six or seven other guys that they are picked up. They eventually took two that they shot there and the other one they let go. So you never knew where oh we would my. go, you know. So. Oh, my. So yeah. was your mother uh, in, working in a restaurant during the war? Were there yes. restaurants she during a, the war? She, she was a waitress, yes. Ah. And she started this way and started learning how to cook better from the chef and eventually opened her own restaurant. And at the end of the war, she already had her own restaurant. So how old so. were you when, you when the war ended? Well, uh, I was uh, nine years old, t- ten years old, no, ten years old. Ten yes, years I was old. Born at the end of 35, yes. So. so do you think those years really formed one of your attractions to food in a, in, in a major way? Certainly, in many ways, you know, uh, this is kind of very insidious, you know, the way things come in or the way change as you get older and so forth. But certainly those first memory of a child, those first taste, those restrictions and all that, yes, I, I think stay with you the rest of your life. So then at 15, you were... You were working in some grand restaurants when you were a, a teenager. And how, yeah. how was that? What was your, how were your eyes opened through the restaurants? Well, we, actually, it was 13 and a half when I left home. But when I left home, my mother already had a restaurant in Lyon uh, called Chez Pépin, you know, a small family restaurant. And uh, prior to this... I still remember going to the market in the morning with my mother. We didn't have a car at the time. And along the Sone River in Lyon, there is the market to start at three o'clock in the morning. It's about a mile long uh, with all the farmers. So it may sound kind of romantic now, but for my brother and I, it wasn't. You know, we had to carry each one a big bag and my mother would walk the market one way and buy on the other way. Uh, buying half a, a crate of mushroom because those mushrooms were dark too and they know they couldn't sell it the day after so she bought it just at the limit to buy it for half price or less because then get back to the restaurant start peeling her vegetable and start cooking for the day and every day it was the same thing we had no refrigeration remember so we had a glacier which was you know an ice box really a, a block of ice and so she had some fish and the meat that she had but that was for the day the day after you had to have something else so there the food had to be had to be fresh because there was no choice anyway there was no freezer right so what was uh, the first great restaurant grand restaurant or cuisine restaurant that you worked in well when i left home i worked at the hotel de l'europe in bourg-en-bresse for my apprenticeship and for me that was certainly a grand restaurant it was uh, and the executive chef there paul jauget actually had been to school with my mother uh, when they were a kid uh, uh, but uh, he addressed me as petit, you know, petit, like kid, you know, he never uh, addressed me as my name, Jacques, until 
after a year of apprenticeship, I was allowed to go to the stove. For a year, you do a lot of cleaning, a lot of menial sting, cleaning up, and they send you back and forth, and all of a sudden, they say, you start at the stove tomorrow. I said, me? I, 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 I don't know what to do. And you start at the stove. <clears throat> so our learning was through osmosis. You know, you're next to one, because the chef never told you anything. If uh, he tell you do this, if you had said, you wouldn't even think of it, but if you had said why, he would have said, because I just told you. <laughs> that was about the end of the explanation, so you did, and eventually learned through a type of osmosis that you started the stove. Hmm. And uh, which brings us to a point, like yesterday, I think uh, uh, Andre Saltner was talking about, after three years of apprenticeship, you know, uh, working really hard, we would never, never have been able to do what, the student do at the French Culinary Institute after six months. No way. However, we were probably much faster with our hand and all that because mm. we did those type of... Uh, but that was the way apprenticeship was. So tell me, um, in very short order, you were made the chef at the Elysee Palace, which is the White House of France, and uh, you cooked for Charles de Gaulle. Right. What I mean, at what age was that? And well, what I was, was that like? I was, I was 21 there. But uh, I had started, as I say, from age 5, 6, but formal apprenticeship, age 13. I finished my apprenticeship. I worked in Aix-les-Bains in a seasonal place for the season and work in Lyon. Then eventually work in, uh, in a place, L'Arbrel, which is near Geneva, where I took the job as the chef for the winter. I was 17 years old. Woo. And the point <laughs> is that uh, there was a chef there, but uh, the winter was very, very quiet. So he used to do the season in the ski area. So they took someone like me and I was, quote, the chef for the winter. I see. And, uh, and after that, then I left and went to Paris. So I had been working in Paris at the Plaza Athenee, Maxime, Fouquet's, some of the great restaurants of Paris by the time I was 21, you know. So, hmm. so uh, what was it like cooking for Charles de Gaulle? Well, you know, uh, to start with, the role of the chef and certainly the position of the chef are quite at the antipode, you know, at the opposite of what they are today. I mean, we were really at the bottom of the social scale and any good mother would want would have wanted her child to marry an architect, a lawyer, or a doctor, certainly not a cook, which now, of course, we are genius, so it's quite <laughs> different. But uh, at that time, you work in the back kitchen. I mean, I was alone as a chef, and I serve only six or eight people a day. Then I had the dishwasher. Then I asked, I said, I need a pastry chef. That's when I met Claude. My friend Jean-Claude came and worked uh, for me or with me. And uh, during that time, as I said, we served really never more than 10, 12 people at the most, usually four or five, shot the first family, and on Sunday, the dominical meal, you know, after church, for example, the goal, uh, were very, uh, uh, you know, religious, and they went to school, to, to a church every Sunday, and then there was the, the family meal after children, grandchildren, and so forth, and those type of meal, then of course the menu would be decided by Madame de Gaulle, I spoke with her during the week and she said, I want you to do that. I want a, usually very simple, straightforward, you know, a gratin of potato with, a, 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 you know, maybe a leg of lamb, then a quiche to start and maybe a caramel custard. Uh, but the best quality of what you could find, the cheese and all that, mm. you know, simple, mm. good food. 
how it came to state dinner, you know, I served people like Eisenhower and Nehru, Tito, Macmillan, which were the head of state at the time. Usually you'd work it out with the protocol because uh, if uh, when Eisenhower came, for example, then he invited the goal to the American embassy, and then after they may have a dinner at the Quai d'Orsay in Paris, so you don't want to have three times the same fish. So basically the protocol is going to synchronize. You give them some suggestion, but they tell you, depending also whether the menu is very important, whether it's a long menu, whether it's a shorter one, uh, and so forth. So that's usually decided by uh, the protocol. And uh, if no one come, no one ever came in the kitchen, and if ever someone came in the kitchen, it was usually to complain about something. So <laughs> it was good if no one came. When you say a long menu back then, how long was a long menu? How many courses? It, it, could, be, it could be seven courses. It could be about two and a half hours. It's not know, so. French laundry, little three-bite oh, no, courses. No, no, no. That neither. did not exist at the time. No. It did not exist at the time. The service on plate did not exist at the time. Remember that we don't have that until the mid-70s when Nouvelle Cuisine came about. I mean, uh, that's one thing. So that wait, wait, wait. Explain that. So you didn't have food coming out of the kitchen already plated. Oh, no, no, no. Absolutely not. So that, how that was it served? Exist. Well, people think that Nouvelle Cuisine is over. This is maybe one of the biggest legacy of Nouvelle Cuisine. When I work at the Pavilion in New York, everything was on platter. My mother's restaurant, which was really a tiny, inexpensive restaurant, if she uh, cooked a whiting or a piece of fish, it was on a plate, on a platter rather, brought to the table and people put it in their plate. Even at home on Sunday, my mother would not even plate the food. No one knew. She would put a, a, a dish or a roast in the center of the table, the vegetable, and you help ourselves. Never, never, I've never seen once someone bringing a plate of food to someone until Nouvelle Cuisine exploded. And now, I mean, you have no chef who don't serve anything on plate, you know. So that's one of the legacy of Nouvelle Cuisine people don't realize. So they are certainly the service was either à la française or à l'anglaise, that is with the waiter going around to the to the, the guest, you know. And à la française would be you present the dish to the person and the person help. Themselves. Herself or himself, mm -hmm. and a l'anglaise would be the waiter grab it with two fork or spoon and serve it to you in your plate. Ooh, you know, it's a so. good thing we don't do that anymore. No. Okay, well, we're going to take a break here and we're going to come back and go into the 1960s and 70s and talk about that. Oh boy. grass-fed beef pasture raised on 150,000 acres in Central California Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef free-range, sustainably produced humane Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef the authentic flavor of the American West Well here we are with Jacques Pepin. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton at Chef Story, coming to you live every Wednesday at noon from Roberta's in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. Uh, 
Jacques, we were just talking about your early life, and let's now move up to the 1960s. Uh, today, uh, May 10th, we mm-hmm. had uh, a New York Times article that you wrote on yes. Craig Claiborne, and right. we were just talking about everyone knows James Beard and Julia Child, but really there was a holy trinity, and Craig was part of it. Can you tell us a little bit about Craig Claiborne and what he meant to you? Uh, I would still say that Craig was probably the most uh, influential person in my professional life in America. When I first came here in 1959, I worked at the Pavilion and I met him as he came to do an article on Soule and the Pavilion and especially Pierre Freinet, who was the executive chef. So I you know, strike a friendship with Craig. He introduced me to Helen McCauley, who was the food editor on McCall, House Beautiful. Helen was quite well known at the time, and every day she spoke with James Beard for like two hours about the condition of the food world. <laughs> so, uh, Not I, well, the gossip? Yeah, yeah, gossip. <laughs> that's it, gossip. And uh, so she introduced me to James Beard, and eventually, a few months later, she showed me, she said, I have a... a, a you know, a manuscript of a book here. Can you take a look at it? Which I looked at and I said, this, uh, this looks pretty good. And she said, well, it's a woman from California. She's, uh, she's coming next week to New York, so let's cook for her. It's a really big woman with a terrible <laughs> voice. You know, and of course, that was Julia. So I knew those people, as you said, the trinity of cooking within less than a year after I was here to show you how minusculous, you know, in a sense, the food world was mm. at that time compared to now. Mm. So uh, Craig was very, very important. I mean, he, he single-handedly created the vocabulary of food criticism in America, starting, well, 50 years ago, and, uh, and the star system of the New York Times, which is still followed now, and make it respectful. I mean, prior to this, you know, the food page was kind of a home economy done. It's kind of very menial or inimportant, certainly, not serious. And he made <coughs> the, the world of talking about food, whether it was article or certainly the world of food criticism, criticism, you know, powerful. Uh, he could be eloquent even in his, uh, in his writing and uh, respected and so forth. So brought a lot of people into that world. What were the restaurants like in the 60s compared to today? What was the produce like? What was the, you know? Well, that was another world. You know, I remember uh, going to the supermarket for me. I live on 50th and 1st Avenue and there was D'Agostino Brother, which was supposed to be a great market. And I remember there, there was only one salad that was iceberg. And then I asked, where are the mushrooms? They say aisle five. That was canned mushroom. You had to go to a specialty store to find mushroom. Now there was no leek, there was no shallot, none of the oriental vegetables. It was really another world. Mm. At the pavilion, certainly, as I work, we get a great deal of the stuff from France. Fish particularly, which was crazy because we have wonderful fish here. Eventually, people would discover, you know, Maine and Long Island and the fish. So, but at the time, and the restaurant, uh, France was much more preeminent French restaurant than they would be now. But the type of French restaurant was kind of snobbish and uh, uh, with a lot of misspelling in the menu for me, who just came from Paris. <laughs> you know, a lot of misspelling and everything written in French and pretty uh, snobbish and uh, even uh, uh, condescending, you know, to other customers. So it didn't do well to uh, French cuisine. Uh, and often, unfortunately, uh, Americans uh, have still that idea of the French cooking when, in fact, you know, the, the Michelin style cooking, there is only 20 
23 star Michelin in France and there is 145,000 restaurants in France. Even well, people in my family, <coughs> many of those in France have never eaten in a three star restaurant. Three star restaurant. Yeah. Well, you know, we've known each other 25 years right. and you are the least snobby person I know. And I think it was demonstrated, um, people probably don't know, Le Pavillon was the great restaurant after World War II in right. New York City. And from Le Pavillon, you went to work at? At Howard Johnson. <laughs> by choice. And you knew by Mr. Choice. Howard Johnson. You want to tell uh, us yeah. a little bit about that and why you made that professional decision and how yeah. long you were there? Yeah, interestingly enough, going back to me working for the president in France, I was invited to work at the White House for uh, for John Kennedy. And, uh, and uh, I had been here not that long, a year, and at the Pavillon. I had started, you know, studying at Columbia University. I started putting my route. I had friends here. And I really didn't want to uh, expatriate myself again from New York to, to Washington. Uh, I did not realize actually the potential of what it was because as I said, the chef was really at the bottom of the social scale and uh, never ever would anyone do an article. Well, television barely existed, but radio, uh, so it did not exist. And in fact, the person who took the job, René Verdon, it only started there when Mrs. Kennedy started pushing the chef forward. But prior to him, it was a black lady from uh, the South who had the chef. No one would have ever heard of those people in the kitchen. Mm. You know, Now it's totally different. Mm -hmm. So I had that job offer at Howard Johnson. Art Pierre was leaving the pavilion to work for Howard Johnson. He wanted me to come with him. And it was exciting for me because it was another world of cooking, something that I didn't know anything about it, uh, about American eating habits, about mass production, about chemistry of food. And uh, so it was an exciting thing. And I ended up staying from 1960 to 1970 at Howard Johnson. It was my long Ten years. American apprenticeship. My yes. gosh. You, but, did you enjoy working there? Oh, absolutely. But, you know, I opened a restaurant called La Potagerie in New York uh, when I, uh, with a group of investors, large production. Then I opened the World Trade Center with Joe Baum. Mm -hmm. We had 26 restaurants on the main course, mm -hmm. plus, of course, Window of the World and Skydive on 44th Street. Mm -hmm. uh, I set up the commissary. Then I worked as a consultant for the Russian Tea Room as well. I'm saying that to say that all of those jobs, I could never have done those jobs if I hadn't had the training of Howard Johnson, mm. other chef. Uh, coming from France, I would not have known anything about that type of production. So it was very good for me. You know, I, when people say, what is Jacques like? I say, he's true Renaissance man. Well, and really. uh, oh, oh, not really. Wait, we're going to get into his painting. And, but uh, you also decided at this time to go back. Well, back to, you left home at 13 and a half. You right. decided to go to college. You went to Columbia University and wound up with a master's degree in French uh, literature. What made you go back to school? What made you study French literature and uh, have a master's degree in it? Yes, well, the point is that I already had, like many chefs, starting with Pierre Frenet and all of us, uh, a bit of a complex about not having an education. The chef in France was really working in the kitchen too, so the chef did not open restaurant. It was the maitre d' or people in front of the customer, it was more prestigious. But as I say, the chef itself, so we already had a bit of that type of complex. Well. It was America. I could do whatever I wanted. So I went back. I asked someone, what is the best school? They told me Columbia University, which I'd yeah. never heard of. So three weeks after I was here, not even three weeks, I was 
enrolled at Columbia into English for foreign student, mm -hmm. uh, which I went through a couple of years and I went into a validation program. Eventually, I was accepted into the regular college and did a, a, um, you know, my BA and eventually I did a master. And in fact, related to what we are talking, I was doing a PhD and I basically finished everything except my dissertation. Mm. So I am uh, ABD, whatever they call it. <laughs> but uh, because my dissertation, I proposed an history of French food in the context civilization literature, which is a class that we give at BU now and at that time, especially in the French department at, at Columbia. Mm -hmm. They say, are you crazy? I mean, food. So that was 1968. Mm -hmm. Last year, I gave the commencement address at Columbia and I was introduced by the by the, the president of Colombia, who say, you know, we refused Jacques Thévis like 40 years ago, <laughs> which now would be quite uh, acceptable, you know. Mm -hmm. So the world of food has moved into academia, you know, in different area, which we didn't, didn't oh, exist Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, we're going to get into the modern uh, day in the next segment. Uh, but I, I just wanted to ask you also about your interest in, in art. If For those of you who don't know, pick up, uh, Jacques books because he usually does some of his paintings in those books he's an incredibly talented painter not but, really that's yeah. true well, well you shared with me and I think yeah. this is such an insight <clears throat> you said to me Dorothy I know that I'm a professional chef and I know I'm not a professional painter yeah. can you do you remember what you said to me can you share that how no, you know? but uh, I would probably have said, I suppose, that uh, being a professional chef entails first to be a craftsman or a technician. And if you have that knowledge of repeat, repeat, really that knowledge of the, the subject itself, just like a good jeweler or, or mason or, or a surgeon for that matter, then you can control the media. And if you happen to have talent with that knowledge in your hand, you can take it somewhere. Well, even if I had some talent in painting, I have none of that craftsmanship. So I start working on a painting, make a mess, get disgusted, throw it out, <laughs> because I don't control the canvas, because I haven't spent years and years in studio mixing yellow and blue to make green or controlling the media itself, you know, so... Mm. So I, I and you know I think you also said to me when your hand knows you, you don't even have to tell your hand what to do when you think something your hand yes. can do it so you can spend a lot of time thinking about the steps in the future and what you you know on a very complicated dish It's true you know if you repeat 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 and become a great uh, technician you know a craftsman in the cooking world I'm talking now then now you free yourself that uh, now that you have absorb all of this is kind of part of your DNA so you can let it go now you can think in terms of combination of ingredient in terms of texture in terms of color and your hands are just working around as long as you haven't transcended that level that menial level if you want of craftsmanship then you cannot move forward and that's basically what we teach at the school that is we prepare the people to become great chef if they happen to have talent, they will go there. If they don't have talent, they still can run a restaurant. So how long do you think it takes someone to get that level of proficiency where you're not thinking about it anymore? Because we have all these young chefs coming out of the school, and, and they want to be a great chef in two years. And it's a physical thing. How long does that really take to get to your level? Well, you know, it's, it's like going to school. You know, there is a limitation. If you stop somewhere, you stop somewhere, but you're at that level, period. If you continue learning, 
then you move on. I mean, without any question, we prepare someone to be able to work in a great kitchen. If that person work with Jean-Georges for two years and try to absorb the vision of Jean-Georges von Gerichen and his sense of aesthetic, his sense of taste, then you will have absorbed a lot. Then you do the same thing another two years with Thomas Keller if you want, another two years with Alfred Portali or any of the great chefs. And after you have for five, six years, whether you agree or not, it's going to be material. After you've done that for six, seven years, absorb all that amount, you kind of execute the pun, but you can regurgitate <laughs> the whole thing. But now you are going to send it back through your sense of aesthetic, through your sense of taste. Now you start doing your own stuff, you know, mm. but not really before that. You know, uh, I saw Eberhard Müller uh, uh -huh. not long ago, and he used to be the chef at Le Bernardin. Yes. When Gilbert Lacoste was alive, right. who was the executive chef, and he said he had dinner there recently, and in Eric, <coughs> Eric Repair's food, he could still see Gilbert. Uh -huh. I didn't quite understand that. Could you oh, yes. could you let me know how could someone and Gilbert unfortunately passed away oh over ten years ago, yeah, and and Eberhard could still see the influence. What what does that mean? It means that you know totally different now. Now it's uh, the day of uh, egocentrism. I mean, uh, 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 the chefs very often are egocentric, as I said. They want to sign their own dish. They want to make sure that I am the one who did that and so forth. Exactly the opposite of what it was when I worked in Paris or even at the Pavilion. The idea wa was to conform there. That is to conform to the style of the house to do. Meaning that there were the famous lobster souffle at the Plaza Athene in Paris. We were 42 chefs in the kitchen. I think any one of the 42 chefs could have done it and you would never have known which had done it. Mm. That was the goal to conform to this. So for me, if you put uh, you know, something on my eyes and put that lobster souffle in front of me, I will test it and say, oh, that's the lobster souffle of the Plaza Cere. Or that's the sea bass, you know, the sea bass in, uh, in, uh, in Vermouth that we did at the Pavilion. So you left those places with those memory of taste in your hand. It's not a question of recipe there. It's a memory of taste. And probably at... Uh, Uh, that's what he's talking about, those mm. memory of taste, those essential dishes which define mm. a house, mm -hmm. define the Bernard and Falk, are still there to a certain extent. Mm. Mm -hmm. So uh, do you have an iconic dish from your formation years that has, is really sort of your, your foundation or is it mostly well, technique-based? As I said, you know, uh, if you could have the greatest bread in the world and the greatest butter in the world... <laughs> It's hard to beat bread and butter. <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely but, true. Uh, but I certainly chicken, you know, because I came from Bourg-en-Bresse, the chicken of breast in France. So whether it was chicken in tarragon or a simply roast chicken or the poulet à la crème, chicken in cream, so that my mm. mother used to do that. Those tastes are essential and those tastes are in, uh, ingrained in my brain and I would recognize my mother poulet à la crème anywhere, you know. So. Mm. Well... We're going to break again here, but we're going to come back and start talking about today's chickens. Okay. Thanks, Jacques.
Well, welcome back to Chef's Story. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton, and we're live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And I'm here interviewing the great chef Jacques Pepin. And Jacques has been a dean at the International Culinary Center for 25 years. And quite frankly, when he comes and does his demos, I, I just say he's the Zen master. To You know, even an Andre Soltner and Alain Sayac, who are also deans or any visiting chef, if they come to the school and Jacques is demoing, they stand in the back and they watch. It's his hands are just amazing, and we're talking to him today about his life and uh, his memories and his formation. But now, Jacques, I you know you've seen it all, and uh, you've watched this food revolution in the United States. And we're talking about we have better products, and there's a, a lot going on. What's your what's your take on organics? I remember Julia was not a great organic supporter, quite frankly. What is your take on this whole sustainable organic movement? Mm. I don't know if Julia wasn't. I think she was, but she was not again. She refused to close her mind against uh, modern technology about the possibility yes. of being able to do one thing or another. And I think it's the right attitude. I mean, certainly. Certainly, for me, as I said, uh, my parents were organic farmer, of course, which the word organic did not exist at the time, uh, but the word uh, uh, fungicide, insecticide, pesticide did not exist, but so uh, uh, chemical fertilizer did not exist either. So we were all organic farmer, and we're just kind of uh, finding that again. And uh, I remember when I first met... Uh, uh, you know, I went on the West Coast and uh, uh, was exposed a little bit to organic farmer with Alice Water and all that going too. And people say we're going to buy in a farm and all that. And they were like a big hoopla. My God, what big thing. And I said, what? A big deal. I mean, because mm. of course mm. we were always, uh, it was already the way it was. I had never been in a supermarket mm. before I came to this country. Supermarket did not exist really. I mean, they didn't exist that long when I came here. Mm -hmm. So I think it's great. Uh, without any question. It's terrific to buy local product, to buy, but for me as a chef, I want to buy good product in top of anything else. I mean, whether it's uh, organic or not, if it's lousy, I'm not going to buy it. And uh, it can get exaggerated as we do always in America. I have been to restaurants where they practically came with a plate to introduce you to the carrot her name is Hannah and she was born on the 7th of December said give me a break give me the carrot <laughs> so, so it can go a little too far however at Stone Barns the Blue Hill they do it quite well because they have uh -huh. vegetables we aren't that familiar with and they do right. bring it to the table and sort of educate you and uh -huh. like little kids they say come on try it yeah, and yeah, you yeah. do and it, open, it opens your eyes oh yeah absolutely yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, so uh, you've, you've watched this whole food Movement and what do you think is the best of it that we're experiencing today? And what do you think is the worst of it? What are we missing that you know? Well, the the best of it is me uh, uh, sitting here with you and having a radio show. 
uh, uh, and uh, the prominence of the food world, whether it's radio or whether it's television, it's absolutely amazing. I heard someone on television, on television the other day telling that there was 407 television show on food. I don't know whether it's accurate or not, oh but there gosh. is so many channels and all that. Uh -huh. It's just uh, flabbergasting in many ways. Mm -hmm. So, you know, with that goes all incredible restaurants. I mean, the restaurant at the time of Lutes, you know, at the beginning, uh, people were, the were there to do yeah. it in the 60s. They were there to go pre-theater, you know, and mm -hmm. to go after. Now mm -hmm. the restaurant has become the theater itself. People go there at the theater to be seen, to see the people, to so the restaurant, and along the way, the supermarket, along the way the market the restaurant to so the whole food world that exploded in uh, an incredible and it's uh, the newspaper mm -hmm. you know we talked about the New York Times before there was no food page mm -hmm. now the food page and the book I mean 26 or 2800 cookbook were published last year mm -hmm. including mine including <laughs> how many books have you authored uh, now well, I've done my part like 27 27 like and how many TV series yeah. on PBS well I did the 12 uh, series of 26 shows you know, we did uh, uh, mostly with KQED, the PBS mm. station mm. in San Francisco. So this is an amazing thing. You know, it permeated the life of everybody and a little restaurant. And in that great place, we are here in Brooklyn. I mean, you would mm. not have thought of that even five, in ten Bushwick, years ago. Bushwick, Brooklyn, yeah. for and those I, of you I, out there who know Bushwick. It's it, it's fantastic place for birders. You have to come here. Uh, well, you know what? You were talking before about uh, not taking the job at the White House and, mm -hmm. you know, being in the basement and but actually the role of chefs have become so prominent you've gone through the front door of the White House with your daughter and granddaughter Shori yes, right. tell us about that well I did I went I went actually you know I was I went to the White House uh, several times to see the chef mostly but I was invited by Barbara Bush when I did that book called uh, The Apprentice mm -hmm. and again that was a big surprise for me and I'm not trying to be modest because she was involved into a public library no no that was Laura Bush Laura right? Bush oh, yes. oh you said Barbara I think oh I'm sorry there's so many no, Bushes Bush, you know yeah, in the yeah. White House no no Laura Bush yeah. <laughs> and she uh, 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 decided to invite Eddie author of the year and I was one of the eighth year author which I don't really still understand because they probably say at some point we need someone in the food world and uh, <laughs> so I was invited and uh, uh, there for my book The Apprentice and uh, we signed book there and it was really a big uh, honor for me but last year I went back to the White House with uh, Michelle Obama invited me to cook from the the organic garden there and I took it was for the Easter uh, eggs hunt, you know, so and mm -hmm. uh, I went there with my daughter Claudine and my granddaughter Shari and uh, we cooked uh, crepe and stuffed it with stuff from the garden and mm -hmm. strawberry and so forth. Mm -hmm. So it was really fun and it shows again, you know, that at that level I remember mm -hmm. even Alice Water when Clinton came to her, called me and just said, we have to do an organic garden on top of the White House. Mm -hmm. She had lunch with that idea. It never really uh, happened but I mean there is it's in the air you know uh, the food is permeating do all aspects of life what, you know do you think America's leading the way about eating intelligently for the 21st century what's going on in, in Europe do they just eat well uh, as in the old days we always had I'm, a complex as no, Americans or are we eating better now in America I think without any question uh, America is leading the way in eating uh, really uh, in eating period eating well that's something else. okay yeah. we do eat a lot maybe way too much yes. I mean I remember when I was at Howard Johnson when the first time they introduced a 12 ounce uh, soda 
I said, mm-hmm. what, 12 ounce? Look at that size of that thing. Mm-hmm. Now you get like 45 ounce mm-hmm. soda or plate of food, which is totally mm-hmm. ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You know, so yes, uh, I don't believe, I mean, there is like 24,000 restaurants in New York. There is no place in the world, you know, that can, uh, can, can do that. I mean, because uh, uh, in France, uh, there are, uh, you know, ethnic restaurants, of course, but 99% of French people eat French because mm-hmm. that's the way you were born. And mm-hmm. so it goes in Italy, of course, mm-hmm. and in Spain, mm-hmm. and in Belgium, and in mm-hmm. Germany. But in America, it doesn't take this, this way. America is made of people like me, of people of different background, mm-hmm. of ethnic group, and that's the reason why someone like me can come to America and, quote, become famous, but... On the other hand, a Greek chef can do the same thing, and mm-hmm. a Chinese chef can do the same thing, and mm-hmm. an Italian chef can do the same thing. It would be very hard in France to do that outside, you know, to permeate that culture of France, or Italy for that matter, or, or So uh, l- let me ask you, since this is called Chef Story, and I hope there's a lot of budding chefs out there listening, mm-hmm. uh, w- if you were a young chef starting out today, right? how do you think your career would progress and where would you go for influence how would you form yourself well uh, if you are the luck that I had and I didn't have a family to feed or anyone else so you don't worry too much about money you try to work as much as you can with the greatest chef and you know mm-hmm. who they are from one place or another uh, to form yourself and that would go for at least eight ten years the point is that you should get into that business uh, for the right reason. And the right reason is that it gratified you, it satisfied you, you love to do that, you love to please people. The food world is a great place to be. There is no political implication in what we do or racial implication or religious implication. That's mm-hmm. why probably the only thing we can talk about is food now. <laughs> That's the only thing, you know, <laughs> That's politi- why politically shows. correct. <laughs> politically correct, you mm-hmm. know, but it's true. So if you go, if you go into that business to quote, become famous and do a book or a television series, uh, because so many chef are on television now, you're bound to have some profound uh, disappointment, you know, because it may happen, but it's likely that it may not happen. But uh, if you go for the right reason, because you want to do that, it satisfied you, you love it too, it may happen that you become famous too, so so much the better. But you have to go in for the right reason, because it's still a difficult world, it's still a work where you work 12, 14 hours a day, Mm -hmm. you still sweat a lot, you still work Saturday and Sunday, you still work holiday, and really you don't make much money. Mm-hmm. I mean, you start a salary of twelve, fourteen dollars. You know, after you come out of a school, mm-hmm. you know, the proper school and all that. So it's still quite low, but mm-hmm. for most people, it's satisfying and gratifying. Mm-hmm. I know <coughs> when I opened the school twenty-eight years ago, most of the budding chefs that really were on the you know track to be prof- the, the top all felt every year they had to go to France and do the three-star Michelin circuit. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's still necessary today? I really don't think that it's still necessary. It's still good to go to another country and experience another another lifestyle, whether it's in Italy, in France, and all that. It's not that French cuisine has gone down that much. It's that it was very preeminent before. It's that so many other cooks cuisine of catch up with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I came to America, there was no Italian cuisine, so-called. I mean, uh, uh, even though a third of the population of Italy immigrated in the 30s, you know, in America, so there was a great uh, amount of, uh, of American and Italian uh, 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 heritage here, but it was 
uh, Italo-American type of food, meatball to, I mean, the great cuisine of, uh, of Italy, the great restaurant and all that, people didn't really know that type of cuisine. That, mm -hmm. of course, has ca caught up, and as well as Spanish, as well as Chinese, mm -hmm. Japanese, and so forth. Mm -hmm. So French has receded in that sense that it's not mm -hmm. as prominent as it used to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, what's one of the best meals you've had lately uh, that surprised you? Well, I had a great meal last night at the school. <laughs> you know, it's always good. <laughs> like, oh, uh, thank you yes. for the plug. <laughs> no, but it, it's true. I mean, the food, uh, it's fresh every day, so it's good. Uh, mm -hmm. I had some great food uh, last week in uh, Connecticut at uh, my friend with a little uh, bistro called Café Boucher. Uh, you know, it's really great, simple, straightforward food. But on the other hand, now uh, we are in uh, May, uh, and it's the time that uh, on the, the Boston Post Road in Connecticut, the Clem Castle is going to open for the summer. And I'll, I'll go there for my, you know, lobster roll because mm -hmm. they use the Philadelphia roll that we used to use at Howard Johnson that you open for hot dog. Uh -huh. You brown it nicely on each side in butter. Uh -huh. You have fresh lobster in the center just with butter, salt and pepper on top. And, you know, often that's what I discuss with students who want to do extraordinary dishes. I say just work in depth. You know, often I'm being the devil's advocate. So when I work like the, at BU, I say, okay, today we're going to do a lobster roll, a BLT, and a hot dog. People say, are you crazy? Yes, there is always a way of doing a better hot dog with a better hot dog, with a better roll, with a better mustard, with a better way of doing it. So that people say, you know what? I had a lobster roll there, or I had a hot dog, or I had a hamburger in that place. That was incredible. It's hard to give that message to the student. They want to work on very flamboyant meal when, in fact, you know, you should work in depth, you know, certain of those dish, you know, a properly roasted chicken. It's not because you did it once that you know how to do it, you know. Need wow. A few, few hundred times, you know. You know, Jacques, I don't think you could give a young chef better advice. Right. And I see we're running out of time here. I can't thank you enough for being my first guest oh, ever on you. Chef thank Story. You, so you are the ultimate Chef okay. Story. And I want to thank you. And I want to thank all our listeners today. And come back next Wednesday at noon. Thanks, Roberta's. Thanks, HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Thank you. Thank you, Dorothy. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. <laughs>